You're listening to the Australian Hunting and Beyond podcast with Matt. Where we talk about hunting, shooting, fishing, camping, and everything else that the great outdoors has to offer. Let's get into it. The weather is warming up and I know when it comes towards summer, it is a time where I like to put down the rifle a little bit, mainly because the state forests tend to get some total fire bans and you can't hunt. But I do love getting out there and chasing some fish, whether it be fresh or salt water. So I thought what better way than uh, get somebody on who's got a fair bit of experience and we'll talk about how we linked up. But I'd like to welcome to the show Damon Sheriff from Tasmanian Fishing Artistry. Lovely to be here, mate. Mate, uh, really excited that you've been able to join us. And um, I've spoken to some taxidermists for deer and goats and things like that. But you're on the other side of the spectrum. And I'm really curious as to how this whole thing works with fish because that's your bread and butter. And just to explain how we sort of linked up was I was actually, uh, I saw this monster brown trout that was caught down in Tasmania. I think it was 39 pounds off yeah. the top of my head. Yep, it was huge. And uh, I believe you are the taxidermist who is dealing with that monster. Yes. <laughs> and that's how we got chatting. And, uh, yeah, so I thought what a, what a perfect opportunity. Mate, wh- talk me through how you do everything because – Yep. It it looks phenomenal. I, I will say that. And I've I've seen your your Facebook and whatnot where oh, look, it shocks me if this is true. You paint individual scales? Yes, yes. All right. T- talk me through all this. Rightio. I'll I'll start off what I do. I the angler obviously catches the fish and brings it to me. And I normally put it in the freezer until it's time to do it, and I get it out of the freezer. And then what I do is I take a heap of measurements of the fish across the fish lengthways, the gills to the end of the body. I also measure where the fins go on the fish. And basically what I do is carve a foam body to fit inside the fish. So I make a body with the measurements I've got on a piece of paper. I measure the fish with a pair of calipers and um, the body's made out of foam and that's the first thing I do. The next thing I do is is create the head and um, I don't, most taxidermists with trout don't actually use the real head anymore because what happens over time is they don't last, they shrivel up. And they hold a lot of oil and um, they tend to leak the oil and this makes a mess of them. So they don't last. So I actually make a silicon cast of the actual fish's real head and basically fill that with fiberglass. So I get a, a replica of the head that comes out of the mould. And the other procedure, what I do is skin the fish. So... I run an incision along the backside of the fish or if the customer wants two sides showing, I run the incision along the top of the fish. So um, I basically hide it that if they want both sides showing and um, 
I do that with putty, but um, on the back side of the fish is a wall mount, so the fish would be actually mounted up on the wall. And after that, it's a drying process, which normally takes about um, probably about 12 days if the weather's all right. So we're just waiting for all the moisture to get out of the skin. And I normally do that indoors, so near the fire, around, you know, around a nice warm room. And then I start my artwork on the fish, and you're exactly right what you said. I actually individually paint every scale. So sometimes, you know, a trout, a complete trout has around about 3,000 scales. Wow. So I actually paint 3,000 scales by hand. And it comes out, it's a big, big effort, but it comes out so much better than just a, an airbrushed fish. And, um, yeah, and then I, I apply the top coat, which is a, a varnish, uh, normally a two-pack um, epoxy varnish I use. And um, if the fish is actually, it has two, two show sides, I actually put the fish on a, um, a rotisserie like a fishing lure and that, because um, it's quite slow drying the um, the epoxy, and that gives it a really nice, smooth sort of round finish around the fish. So you get no lumps or anything like that. And after that, I normally work on the habitat. So whether the person wants a board or some people like their fish mounted on driftwood or um you know, some rocks, some artificial rocks with some reeds over the back or, you know, it really depends on the person of how they want to display them. And I, I give the the angler all that option to, to choose all that. So, yeah, there's quite a bit to it. I, uh, so there's a lot of similarities between what you do and what someone does with, say, a deer. So, yeah. which slightly shocks me a little bit because I just think how fragile – fish skin can be and how like um, what's the word it's probably how thin and mm. it just feels like a really slight membrane as opposed to like a, an animal skin and, and like hair it just it fascinates me how do you put I know with deer they stitch it together can you do that with the fish skin like I'd be thinking like a small needle would almost you know make a big hole because it's such a thin membrane yeah, well, some of the trout species are actually worse than others. Things like tiger trout, brook trout, they actually have quite thicker skin and they're a lot easier to work with. But probably the worst type of trout of them all is rainbow trout and they have extremely thin skin and their scales um, are very easily, they come off very easily. So you have to take extreme care with them. I do use a, a tanning solution, which a homemade one, which I make up. It's sort of like a pickle. And um, I put this on sometimes if, if the fish is um, like very touchy, if it, if it's tend, it has a tendency of popping scales, I'll actually tan the skin in um, an esky before I actually work on the fish. And what this does is just toughen the scales up slightly and then I work on the fish and then I give it a really good go in the tanning solution. But rainbows are an absolute nightmare to work on and um, the more silver they are, normally the, the easier the scales come off them. So 
the silverfish tend to be the worst ones. Oh, yeah, it, that yeah, it's super super interesting, and I've just got so many questions for you. How long does it take? Like you were saying that three thousand scales to individually paint. How long does that take you? Yeah, I'm I'm not a really fast painter. I must admit, I, I do things pretty slowly. But the last fish I did was um, a twelve pound um, sea trout caught out of the Tamar River near Launceston, which is um, in northern Tasmania. And uh, it was a beautiful fish, but very silver fish. And um, basically, I had to paint more or less every scale on the fish. And um, it took me it took me about two days to finish the paint job. So it probably took took me 15 hours, 15, 18 hours, somewhere there. Um, and that's not including the, the clear of the fish. So, you know, really, it's very hard to add up the, the hours you do spend on them because you're always waiting for something to dry. And um, it does draw it out for a you know, it can take well over a month to finish a fish normally, but the actual work time is probably around, more close to around about one and a half to two weeks on a, on a decent size one. But because you've got all that drying time, you know, a lot of people have two fish on the go, so they actually, they've always got a job to do. But yeah, rainbows and silverfish are, um, are definitely the ones you sort of got to be a little bit more careful with because they do tend to have very, very fine skin and um, their scales can pop very easily and it's quite hard to hide missing scales on a fish skin. You've nearly, I know some people have actually scaled the whole fish. I haven't done it myself, but I have a few taxidermy friends and they've actually scaled the whole fish and, um, and done away with the scales, but it this doesn't look quite right to me, but I like to have the scales on the fish. All right, so let's let's get to that trout because I'm um, I'm by no means an expert chasing trout. I'm really only just getting into it. I've always I've grown up and you know probably spent forty percent of my you know up to about eighteen nineteen down the south coast of New South Wales chasing saltwater fish. Yep. Now I'm really focusing a bit more on the freshwater stuff. For me. Looking at this thing going, man, 39 pounds, eight, that's just, oh, it, it's enormous. So firstly, congratulations to Ashley out there who was the angler. Well done. That's like, what a stonker. It's it's enormous. Does it make you nervous when you are like working with that? Because, you know, potentially it's like the heaviest trout or brown trout that someone's got in Australia. Does it make you nervous, like playing around with it? You, you oh. don't want to lose a couple of scales. Like I just, it freaks me out. Freaks me out. It really does. Like there's always, a, you know, you're working on someone's pride and joy, and it's there's always in the back of your mind, you could stuff it up. You could actually run the scalpel or the um, fleshing tool through the through the skin and and wreck someone's fish of a lifetime. But you know you've you just I suppose you get better and better the more you do it and um it becomes less on your mind I suppose um with a really big fish the last one I or the one I'm actually just finishing off now is a 20 pound um trout from the Pyman River on the west coast of Tasmania and um 
it's a I'm doing it for a young fella and um it was he caught it on his second fishing trip and um it's one of the biggest sea trout or sea running brown trout ever caught in the Pyman and I was quite nervous skinning that it uh, it really took a lot of time to skin it and I wanted to do a really good job for him so um I was being extra 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 careful because I know those fish don't come around every day of the week they're quite a rarity and um I'd hate to muck one up on on someone like that yeah it just I look at it and go man there's some crazy sort of fish that you've been able to do you're, uh, I believe you did a big snapper for your son, like a ninety centimeter snapper. That's a that was a decent fish as well. Does that hit home a bit more because it's for your son? Well, the snapper, the last snapper I did, it's actually been work in progress for about twelve years. <laughs> so it's sort of, I've got quite a few work in progress fish, and they always get put at the back of the line because I'm always working on other people's fish to make make an income so my fish and my son's fish tend to get sort of put aside so they can take a number of years for 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 us to to get to them but yeah benjamin my eldest son caught that snapper out of the tame river in northern tasmania as well and um um it was his biggest snapper and he um he caught it he's 24 now so he must have been about 12 i reckon when he caught it and, um, yeah, I finally got it finished this year for his birthday. So he was pretty stoked with that. It's not a bad effort for a, uh, a what would you say, 12-year-old to yeah, catch one like that. Happy days. I've been uh, chasing some snapper and I, I'm not up to that size yet. It was uh, quite an impressive fish. Yes. We're pretty lucky down here. We get some um, some really, really big snapper. Um, I live at Bridport, uh, which is in the state's northeast. I used to live in the Tamer River and I've moved here about eight years ago and I mainly target snapper and I've caught them up to 11.6 kilos down here. So, um, yeah, there's some really, really big snapper in Tassie. Having a look at all the different stuff and you were sharing some of your fellow taxidermist mates' posts and looking at the lobster and the crabs yeah. and things like that, that's super impressive too. How how does that work? Because do you dabble in that or just tend to stay with the fish side of things? But then how, because they're a, a crustacean, is that a different way again? Is it a bit easier because the shell's almost hard? Yeah, I, I'm i not really up to speed with it. Um, my friend Ron, Ron Cook um, from Hobart, he um, – he specialises in crabs and um, crayfish, and um, he does an absolutely beautiful job of them. Um, but, you know, I don't reckon you could probably get a job, a better job anywhere. But I, I haven't dabbled in in them, so I'm sort of not up to speed with the process that Ron does. A lot of the taxidermists sort of keep, you know, especially with things like crabs and that, they keep their methods pretty hush hush, if you know what I mean. For obvious reasons, they don't want other. They don't want competition around the area, and it's fair enough because there's not, you know, the, the, there's probably not a, not a. Um, it's not a real big place, Tasmania, so you don't really want too many, too much competition down here. But um, I sort of started taxidermy in the Launceston Museum, the Queen Victoria Museum in Launceston, and um, I worked there for a little while, and they, they taught me how to do 
fish and birds and I sort of did some kookaburras and stuff and I sort of loved fishing so I sort of sort of ended up getting into the fish and doing it as a hobby just to start with and it just grew and grew and grew over 25 years now I'm full-time doing it full-time so yeah that's that's cool I mean it's good to be able to do your passion for what you are to make an income do you find it's impacted your fishing though or do you find you're out there catching things and you're comparing to some of your customers you know the fish they've got and going oh geez I need to I need to get a bigger fish here because these guys have put me to shame absolutely especially with the trout like you know I'm, I'm pretty lucky I've seen some of the biggest trout that a lot of people in Australia have you know that have never seen and it makes you think you know my biggest trout's about my personal biggest trout's about nine pounds and um you know seeing a fish nearly 40 pounds well it sort of makes your little nine pounder look like a (laughs) a little um guppy compared to that so but it does it raises me up like this time of year especially when Tasmania's trout season opens, I get a really big rush of fish coming in from Lake Crescent, which is in um, the middle of Tasmania, and um, there's some trophy fish in there, and also a lot of the estuaries, um, I get a lot of fish from the estuaries, the sea running fish, and they grow really big because they're eating like high protein food like white bait and little eels and Oh, a lot of little nady fish we get in the rivers here and they can grow absolutely huge and probably 90% of my work comes from sea trout, from those big sea trout. So that, that was going to be my question about the 39-pounder. Where, like, what is that, – that's a big fish. Like, for that to get that big, it's obviously towards, like, it's a, more a sea trout. Is that what you're saying? No, that's um, – yeah. it's a – what happens here – is normally we get these monster trout in two areas and it can happen in the wild, but normally if it happens in the wild and they get to, you know, 20 pounds, it has to be somewhere with a, with a real lot of food. And normally these days where it happens is in the estuaries where the, where the trout are catching fish to eat or behind the back of fish farms and what happens the trout don't necessarily come from the farm Um, sometimes they do sometimes they get out when they're little sometimes they get out when they're a bit older sometimes they're wild wild fish in the river and what happens is the the outflow of the fish farm a lot of the the food that gets fed to the trout in it the uneaten food like pellets and also um little fry, little rainbow trout fry, and um, even when they get a bit bigger, they'll actually eat whole trout, like whole small rainbows. And a lot of them get out of the trout farm, and what happens is the big wild fish, and some not so wild, some that have actually escaped, will hang around the back of the fish farm and grow absolutely gigantic. And that's what's happened in this case. It's been a fish that's either come out of the fish farm at a small size or a bigger size, and it's got even bigger again by feeding on all the rubbish and all the the um, small rainbows and that that get out of the fish farm, or it's a wild fish in the river 
and it's tapped onto that food source coming out of the back of the fish farm because most of the fish farms are actually built on rivers in Tasmania. And um, the river that that fish farm is built on is called the Tyena River, just out of Hobart. And it happens in a few other spots. There's another fish farm in Brumbies Creek, and um, which is in the north of the state. And these huge brown trout, they don't even farm brown trout in the fish farm, but these huge brown trout live behind the fish farm and eat all the the fry and the juvenile um, rainbows and that the fingerlings that come out of the pipes that run through Brumby's Creek Fish Farm and they sit there and they just grow gigantic. And every now and then you hear of a 20-pound fish or, you know, 15-pound fish getting caught behind those fish farms. So it's a bit like um, what happens in New Zealand, like, Twizzle the the river over the canals over there. There, all those big fish um, apparently grow huge because they're eating a lot of the the fish food that's coming out of the farms. And there's a lot of farms in those canals over there. So it's an artificial source of protein for the fish, and that's why they grow so big. So essentially, it's a like an all you can eat buffet that yep. they're just sitting off the back of and just. You know, having a field day as all that food source just keeps popping along exactly. and they're just able to grow ginormous like uh, a couple of the things I've seen on your page. That's um, Look, either way, I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's a fish that's out there to be caught. Uh, it's impressive nonetheless. Uh, you know, I, I would not be upset if mine was an escaped farm fish <laughs> was that big. I'd be... Just as happy. Oh, my word. Excuse my cold too, mate. I've got a bit of a croaky voice and I'm losing it, so. Oh, you're right. Yes. Well, at the end of the day, mate, you look at it, trout are an introduced species. They're not native to Tasmania or the mainland and, you know, 90% of the the lakes and um, rivers around Tasmania, the fish have actually been stocked. So they've come out of fish farms anyhow at the end of the day. The only ones that probably haven't, you know, a few little rivers around the place have little wild populations of browns and um, and the sea trout obviously are self-populating. But really, it's all artificial. The whole fishery is artificial from the start. So whether the fish has come out of Eildon Pondage in Victoria or up at Arthur's Lake, up the Central Highlands, yes, it's a wild trout, but originally, many, many, many moons ago, came out of a out of a fish farm. So, the, you know, a trout's a trout at the end of the day. Yeah, and that's it's always fascinated me a little bit. Like, you know, I tend to talk about deer and and a few different species, but the trout side of things, where we have a non-native fish that we deliberately breed and stock for people to catch sort of goes against what a lot of conservation groups want to do with like deer having them not on the landscape but then we've got trout that we breed like crazy and put back into the into the rivers and streams and and whatnot for people to catch it's very interesting the different dynamics from sort of my perspective with the taxidermy you do is there any times when people like you said they freeze a fish but is there any times that they might not get it right or something goes wrong and is there another way of 
being able to um, provide a trophy for them? Yes, there is, mate. Um, trout, you can cast, fiberglass cast trout. They do, I've done them, but it's quite, a, you know, I've got moulds of trout in my shed, which I can make up for someone. I do the snapper the same way. I actually make a mould and I attach all the real fins onto the snapper. It just makes it look a bit more life, lifelike. And, um, but with the trout, they don't, once frozen and they come out of the freezer, probably about eight out of ten don't cast that well because what happens is they deteriorate very, very quickly once they come out of the freezer and um, they actually go lumpy and, you know, you, you're forever losing scale detail on, on the, on the mould because you have to do a lot of repair work to try and get them smooth again. So what they do in America, and it's an absolute huge job, and I won't do it because it's, it's just such a massive job, they actually skin mount the fish and then they take a mould of the skin mount, and that way it won't actually, uh, you know, it, it won't go bumpy and horrible once it's frozen. But, you know, it'd have to be a pretty special fish to do that. You know, you'd have to, because it's such a big process, you've got to do basically two jobs to to get a mould of a fish. And um, so I, I won't do them anymore because of that reason. But other fish do cast really well like um snapper kingfish tuna marlin brim any of those sort of fish you you can make a really nice either fiberglass or silicon mold of the fish and feel feel like do two sides so it's like a sandwich and then fill it with um with gel coat and resin and matting and um clamp it together and you've got an exact master of the fish so it's exactly the same shape as what your fish was there's no artistic license at all in carving the body or anything like that it's identical to the millimeter so it's the most accurate way to to do the fish but they're probably harder to get the realism um, of a skin mount because the skin mounts always got better scale definition because um, the undercuts in the mould are never, ever as sharp as what the scales are on the actual real skin. And, you know, around the gills and places like that, it picks it up nicely, like uh, silicon's probably the the best of it, silicon rubber. It picks up the detail really nice, but it's never, ever going to be as real-looking and as sharp as what a real head fish head would be. So it has its ways. The one thing, uh, beauty of it, you can do multiple copies of um, of the fish. So if someone caught a snapper, a 90-centimetre snapper, and wanted to eat it or wanted to release it, they could and they could come to me and say, you know, I'll let my fish go or I've eaten it. Have you got a mould of a 90-centimetre snapper? And I'd say, yes, I have. I've got one. And I'd be able to do them up one you know, I, I've got quite a few moulds at home, snapper especially, um, both males and females from about a metre down to about 80 centimetres. So I could nearly match up the fish to the person's, what they caught. But trout, 
it's a bit of a, a process with trout doing it that way to do it properly. So I don't, I, I just don't do it anymore. I do, all my trout are just skin mount. Okay, so you're a keen fisher. What do you like to chase the most? Snapper. Snapper, okay. Yep. I would have thought with the uh, a lot of trout down there, that would be like right up there. Why, why snapper? Uh, I grew up in the Tamer Valley, which is um, just out of Launceston, and it's on the um, the shores of the Tamer River. And when I'm 50 now, and when I was about in my mid-20s, I got a, I caught a snapper, and I there wasn't a lot of people fishing for them back then, and I got nearly addicted to them because, um, you know, they were just such a glorious-looking fish. And I sort of had the whole river to myself back then. It was really good because there was only people chasing flathead. People didn't chase snapper and tassie back in, you know, in the 90s. They were more after bread and butter fish. And there wasn't a lot of snapper in Tasmania back then. They're, they've only really become thick the last probably 10 years. And, like, I used to fish really quite hard um, for, you know, I used to catch between four and ten fish a season. But out of those four and ten fish, normally two or three of them were over 20 pounds. And um, I just got that addicted to them. Like, I was fishing three and four times a week and um, I just got really addicted to it and, I started fishing down at Bridport while I was living there too and I caught some really lovely fish down here and I just love the whole process, going out, catching the squid. I use fresh squid a lot of the time and then get turning that fresh squid back into a you know, a nice big red. And I've I've been lucky. I've had some of the some of the best Victorian anglers come over and come fishing with me in the tamer when I was um when I was younger, because they all wanted to catch the Tamer River snapper, people like um, Jeff Wilson, who does um, Jeff Wilson's knots, knots and Rigs, and I've had quite a few famous people come over and um, and fish with me and try and catch the elusive Tamer River snapper. So it's been a really good experience, the whole thing with snapper fishing. Yeah, that's cool. I think that, you know, my, my old man used to target snapper a lot. Yep. And, um, you know, down the south coast of uh, New South Wales, around the Ulladulla sort of region. And they are a beautiful fish. Yep. And, you know, I can understand why people get addicted to fishing. And it's like any of the outdoor sort of pursuits. And I really struggle to limit myself to one because whether it be, you know, hiking, camping, mm. fishing, spear fishing, hunting, they all offer something just unique, but there's nothing, uh, you know, I, I love a sunrise out on the water. Yeah. And it's just it's just magical. And then when you see, you know, if, when the ocean's alive and there's bait fish and seals and dolphins and sharks and birds and it's, you just feel like you're in an, like a, a Nat Geo sort of film. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's amazing. And to then be able to catch decent fish to feed the family, that's awesome. I'm all about trying to catch whatever it is to use and feed the family yeah, because absolutely. it's it's great and it, it links us back to our ancestors and where we came from and and that's that's a big thing for me. When you get a snapper, yep. if you're going to turn it into a mould, do you eat it? No. Because you're freezing it and then using it, it that's what I was – it's 
it's more of a process that you're not getting to use the meat as well. Yes. Um, okay. The only only way you could do it is, and I don't normally do them this way because they just don't look as real. Is I'm sure everyone's seen in the you know especially. 20, 30 years ago in a lot of tackle shops, there was always a half-sided mount of a snapper up on the wall. And that way, doing it that way is quite a simple, easy way of um, of making a mount. But it also allows the angler to take the fillet off the other side. So that's the only way you can really eat fish because what happens is um, you have to completely defrost the fish because it has to be at room temperature or warmer for the fiberglass to set on it. And by the time you've done both sides, which normally takes, you know, I normally um, leave it overnight. Like I'll do one side and then I'll flip it over the next morning and I'll do the other side in the morning and the fibreglass fumes going through the fish at the same time, and the fibreglass consolidating and heating up, it actually probably cooks the fish a bit as well. Yeah, when you get it out of the mould the next morning, it's pretty well, you know, you, you just the fumes going through it and that, I'd, I'd never eat one. <laughs> It'd be not good for you, I don't reckon. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> At, uh, mate, squid jigging, I'm guessing that's how you do it. I love it. It's yeah. just off the rocks with the little prawn jig, yeah. and uh, man, it awesome. is so much fun. Yeah, uh, except getting squirted with ink—that's <laughs> not so great sometimes. Yeah. and that's happened once or twice. But it is, geez, it's good. I do you obviously eat it as well? Like, do you do you turn it all just to, for the snap of bait, uh, or do you if pinch on yourself? If there's really big fish around, I'll, I won't eat it. But um. <laughs> That's some self-restraint there because yeah. there's nothing better than a bit of calamari. If I've, um, yeah, no, mate, it's beautiful. I love it. I, you know, that that's what I mean. The snapper fishing, it's just such a process. Like, you know, normally we go out. I've only got a little tinny. I fish out of a 4.1-metre centre console. And um, uh, I mainly shallow water fish for snapper. So, you know, I'm probably rarely in over 15 metres and of a night, I fish a lot of a night and I'll be in probably three or four metres sometimes of a night. And um, Yeah, wow. That that shocks me. Yeah, there's I've caught a lot of my really big fish have been in crazy shallow water um, because what happens is they come in, especially in the Tamer and even so down here at Bridport, they come in the, the shallows and they eat, the crabs around the shores and all those little crabs we get they're they're always in that intertidal zone in um you know between see we get three meter tides here so they'll normally be in sort of two you know two meters to five meters and they're always on a mud bottom and the snapper coming after after dark in the tamer river and they'll always be full of crabs the next morning if you catch one early in the morning. And even toadfish, they love toadfish. When the water warms up after Christmas, they, um, they get on the little toadfish here and a lot of the really big fish you'll catch early hours of the morning have always got full of, yeah, little toads. They must have some way of 
processing the poison in the toadfish because it doesn't seem to affect them. And I've had gummies, gummy sharks do the same thing. Um, they'll eat toads and you'll clean them the next day and there'll be toadfish in their stomach and it doesn't hurt them though. So it'd probably kill us though, I reckon. Oh, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to chance the old toadfish personally. But, uh, um, look, it just takes me back a bit that you're getting to get out into a river in um, in a tinny and catch some decent snapper. Yeah. Like for, for us or for, you know, my experience anyway, it's it's more deep sea yep. chasing snapper. Like they do come in. I know I used to fish a lake down the south coast and we used to occasionally get the small ones in there, um, not as much as brim and things like that, but you'd get the the odd one. Yeah, uh, yeah. It just that sort of took me back that you're you're sitting on sort of fifteen meters and and catching snapper. That's awesome. Yeah, overnight, like I've caught them in I've caught them in two meters of a night on a low tide change in the Tamer, and yeah. these are fish over twenty pounds, and they'll they'll right. come up and feed around the edges in hardly any water, and you just wouldn't even know they're there. You know, they, they and there's no structure there. They're all on mud, and they're just out in the middle of a big mud flat, or on the edge of a channel, just about to go onto a big mud flat, waiting for the tide because of the the big tides we get here. It's really um, pretty unique fishing. It's a bit similar to uh, Western Port and Victoria. They get the big tides there, and it runs pretty hard, and um, the fish do a similar thing there. It's that local knowledge fishing sometimes, isn't it? Like that's yeah. I'm relatively confident in the areas that I know when I'm chasing stuff, but going somewhere different, it's a different kettle of fish. I know my, my old man moved up to Queensland, and he's in a, a beautiful spot up there opposite Gary or, or Fraser Island, and it took him a couple of years to really dial in spots and be able to know where to go and what to do. So I can understand the allure of chasing those bigger fish, but also that how hard you have to work just to get that understanding of the times and the right bait and how they're moving. It, it, it is such an art form. You know, it's not as simple. Like, I mean, always someone's going to go out and just throw a line in and get lucky, but to do it regularly is is just a different kettle of fish, isn't it? Yeah. No pun intended. Absolutely, mate. It's, um, you know, I've got friends in Victoria who um, used to fish the Barwon River and the Barwon was a, a prime spot for Big Mulloway and um, a lot of those people have actually come over here and fished with me for the Tamer Snapper um, back in the early 2000s and the 90s. And because the fish were so light on the ground, we were spending similar hours in the Tamer targeting these big snappers, what they were doing their mulloway over there. And, you know, sometimes I'd I'd get 100 hours racked up for just for one fish. But, you know, normally they were really good fish. Like they were, as I said, between 8 and 11 kilos. So back then it was... Um, you know, a young man, I probably wouldn't do it that hard now, but a young man, you know, that obsessed with it all, I used to love it. I know those guys in um, New South Wales and um, Victoria and South Australia, they all do the same thing for their mulloway. And, yeah, it's just a – it's a real art. And you've got to take your hat off to the people who do it because it's, um, it's not easy. And, um, you know, staying up all night and – catching a bait the day before and making sure the bait's fresh or alive, you know, and 
and then fishing under the moon all night. It, it's a real art form. It's funny. I sometimes say hunting and shooting is an expensive hobby, but then you start to throw in a boat and then, you know, <laughs> there's so many other elements to that side of it. And my brother and uh, best mate, uh, they just went out up off, um, oh, don't quote me, but I think it was off Rockhampton. And they did like an eight-day charter. And some of the fish they got was just sensational. They'll, uh, I'll get them on eventually to talk about it. But they were getting wahoo and tuna and uh, you name it. And they both did that. And then they also jumped in with the spears and, um, you know, shot a couple of things too. So it was a pretty damn good trip. And I, I'm pretty happy at the moment because I was lucky enough that the, the brother brought back and he probably gifted us, oh, God, at least probably 10 kilos worth of fish, which is just oh. sensational. And just a mix of just, uh, you know, coral trout, you name it. They, they had such a, a plethora of different species. Yeah. It was um, dead set sensational. So I was sitting there going, oh, geez, I didn't even have to go out. And that was like a 24-hour boat ride. And I'm, I'm terrible. So Tasmania is, you know, perking my ears up here in the river because I get really seasick, yeah. like terribly seasick yeah. to the point that – it does impact me going out because I just – I don't want to feel that way. No, it's horrible. It's, uh, when you were talking about the size of the snapper in the river, I'm like, yeah, that's, that sounds really good. And I'm down there next year actually for a wedding. So I was like, yeah, maybe I'll have to have a uh, do a bit of planning now and, and get out there and try and nail a snapper down there. <laughs> oh, mate. Well, times have changed. Like now they're just that – because they're, they're emerging species in Tasmania. And um, they're a bit like our King George Whiting now. They've they've just exploded, and uh, they're a common fish now. And we're not just catching those big fish. It's a real mixed sizes. We get little pinkies, and um, and you know, I think you call them squire, and, and all the way up to to fish sort of eight and nine kilos still. So it's we've got a really good fishery now. And the Whiting, like the King George Whiting, are are the same. You know. Back then in the 90s, you'd only hear of one now and then, but now they're our main sport fish. Um, They're just that thick and people are catching them all the time, all year round. So it's just great to see. How did that come about? Um, Well, some people think it's global warming. I've got no idea, to be honest. um, I've been pretty lucky, actually. I I work with a scientist at IMAS, which is... um, it's like our research fisheries down here, and um, they've done research on the snapper and the whiting, and my job was actually to write down data for one of the scientists on the ages of the snapper, and they did a few tests on the snapper. They weighed the, uh, the gonads and um, cut the ear bones out, m- measured the fish. This is all from the frame of the snapper. And people were donating their frames, and um, they found out a bit about them. They're, you know, they're about the same age as Victorian fish, but they found out that they're actually not, not Victoria's stock. So they've actually been here, but they've just increased. They've bred up over the years, so they, they've come from our own stock of fish. So. They're not fish moving down from the mainland. They're actually Tassie fish. So they're those big fish I was catching back then in the 90s. They're all related to those fish. So 
it looks like we've always had snapper here, but just not in large numbers. Yeah, that's super interesting. I would have thought migration would have been one of the key areas, but that's cool to know, isn't it? They can tell because the ear bones or the otoliths that they cut out of the fish's skull in Port Phillip Bay and other areas, they get a, a DNA sig- signature in the ear bone. I'm pretty sure it's called barium, the, the chemical get, gets in it. And they've tested the fish that I was catching down here in the 90s and also at Bridport here as well, and it didn't match anything they had on file anywhere in Australia. So it must be that because every spot's different, like they can tell um, the fish from Western Port from the fish from um, from Port Phillip, a lot of the fish get a chemical in the ear bone that cut and the, at what how they tell is the water that's coming out of the Yarra River actually affects the ear bone and um, they can under the microscopes and that they can actually see where the fish is from. So they're apparently they're our fish. So they haven't migrated or not recently. Put it that way, they've been here for quite some time. Yeah, that's cool. It's good stuff. Like that's that fascinates me when you're finding out stuff like this. And just sort of, it's just a little bit of a puzzle and a bit of, I guess, mystery to the whole thing that they were there, but why have the numbers exploded and they're a bit more prolific in in being able to catch them and and have them around. Mm. And what has led to that? It's it's always a fascinating thing to try and understand the patterns and what's happening. So, yeah, that's cool. uh, And being involved is, it must be pretty cool too, that you've been able to, you know, add to trying to, to work out what's happening. Yeah, I was pretty lucky because um, I was their main frame donator because I used to catch so many, or I still catch a lot, and I donate most of my frames I eat. And, um, you know, I got to know the scientists quite well because they were always calling in my place and picking up frames from me. And um, they even gave me my own freezer from, <laughs> from my mass. They put, put a freezer up in my shed. Because I used to fill it up that regularly, but yeah, I got to know them quite well. And they asked me last year if I'd like to come in and help them process the fish. So I thought, oh well, you know, something a bit different from um, from cutting fish open all the time. So and and doing some artwork on them. So I'll go in and and help them do some work on them. So I went in and did that. So it was really good. So speaking of cutting fish open, have you ever cut something open and gone, what the hell? <laughs> what, oh, yeah. what that, it, just, it just shocked you. What was, what was one of those things? Uh, well, I've cut trout open and um, some of the things that big trout are just, just, it's just crazy. Like you really wouldn't want a trout to grow to 100 pounds because honestly they'd eat humans. They'd be more <laughs> dangerous than a shark, I reckon. I've had them eat trout over half the size of the actual trout that's in it. Yeah, that that, that that the fish is. So I've had them eat big redfin, like huge redfin. A lot of eels, always eels in them, like the real big ones. They love eels. Uh, lamprey, uh, which I don't know if you're familiar with them, are no, I'm not. What are they? No, they're, what they are, they're like an eel with a little suction cup on the on their mouth. And we get them down here. And the, a lot of them 
they're along the north coast here, but they get more of them on the west coast. And they, they're a bit like a eel. They come in to the inshore rivers at a certain time of the year and the, the big sea trout come in feeding on them. They're really ugly looking thing. You'll have to Google it and, and check them out when you <laughs> get sick. Yeah, but all sorts of things, really like snapper. I've had a snapper with uh, jaffers in its guts. So some of them are throwing jaffers over the side of the boat at Christmas time. Yeah. Seven, he caught a seven kilo snapper and I, when I finished mounting it, I cut it out and it had jaffers in it. <laughs> that was back in, I don't even know if you can get jaffers anymore. <laughs> but they're chocolates anyhow, anyone that doesn't know. Um what else? I've had a uh, lot of um, lot of leather jackets. They love leather jackets. Big snapper. Don't we all? Yeah. Oh, oh, geez, they're a beautiful, sweet fish, the old leather jacket. Yeah. They seem to eat anything that's slow moving down here. So normally, you know, flathead, anything that, that can't swim that fast, like they're not going to chase down a, a mackerel or something like that. Not not the fish down here. I don't know about up in New South Wales, but um, the fish here more tend to feed on the slow moving things al- along the bottom, and very rarely will we find bait fish in them. You know, occasionally little pinkies might have bait fish in them, but not big fish. They're always got either crabs, crayfish. You know, sometimes big crabs. I'll crush them up, like smash them all up and eat them. Um, sometimes scallops, a lot of scallops in them where I live down at, um, at Bridport, there's a lot of scallop beds out in front of the, the town here, but yeah, a real wide variety of food. Like they'll, they'll have a go at more, as you probably know, they have a go at just about anything if it's, um, if it's reasonably fresh and, um, you know, and lures too, like, you know, they take soft plastics as well. So. Yeah. That's pretty interesting that, um. Yeah, they do, they do like to chase a lot of different things. Mm. So I'm still a little bit taken aback that you're catching them in such low levels of water. Oh. <laughs> that's just that's – that's super cool. It's just crazy. Like especially like my years in the tamer of fishing, you know, I used to curl up in the um, in my little dinghy. I was in a, only in a 3.7-metre dinghy in the tamer and I used to put a bean bag in between the two seats and uh, an outdoor sleeping bag, and I'd sleep in that. And I'd leave my rods out when I'd go, ha- I'd have a snooze, normally between the tide changes. And um, every now and then I'd get one, pick it up while I was fast asleep. And oh, man, oh, man. Because um, I use overhead reels for them. I use um, Abu ambassadors. And um, anyone that knows what the ratchet sounds like in an Abu ambassador, and a 20-pound snapper going crazy in, you know, two or three metres of water, it's just unbelievable. <laughs> nice wake-up call. It's a nice wake-up call. Makes you jump out of bed pretty quick, I'll tell you now. <laughs> it's awesome. Mate, look, that uh, that all sounds awesome. You've, uh, I'm glad we've had a chat because, you know, it's it's got me super excited for the upcoming season in summer. I love to get on the water and it's just one of those things. So I uh, really appreciate your time and talking us through what you do down there. So where can people find your work and follow you and have a look at your stuff? Yeah, Matt. Um, at the moment, I haven't got a website, but I'm, I'm on Facebook under Tasmanian Fishing Artistry and, um, and also on Instagram as well. 
and also do a little bit of writing uh, for Spooled Magazine in New South Wales. So they normally promote the taxidermy pretty well too. So that's it's a um, online fishing magazine that Shane Mint Mintsworth um, in South Australia um, runs. So great magazine. Yeah, cool. I have to check it out. Yeah. Just before we go, do you have um, like do you have people from all over sending your fish to do, or is it just mainly Tasmania? No, I've had fish from all over Australia. I've had trout from Western Australia. I've had a lot of people on holidays here up the especially up the central highlands and that catching their first trout and and leaving it here with me and I'd pack it up and send it back to places around Australia. Done quite a few snapper for people in Victoria. Uh, you know, when their taxidermists over there have been a bit busy or whatever, I've they've sent fish over to me and um I've completed them and sent sent them back over there. So yeah, like I get work from mainly Tasmanian trout is the main thing I do, but you know, every now and then I get a job from interstate. So yeah, don't hesitate if your local taxidermy is busy. Always try me, but normally I'm busy too. So <laughs> we're all pretty busy people, taxidermists. It seems to be that way for everyone I talk to. So it's uh, quite a lengthy turnaround. So it's uh, it's a good thing. Business is going well. That's you got to be happy about that. Yeah, so. no, it, it's it's a good industry. Like I enjoyed it. It was just a hobby when I started, and I sort of because I've um. I come from the tackle industry when I was younger. I worked at Complete Angler for um, in Launceston for quite a few years, and then I bought my own tackle shop and ran that for 10 years until the internet sort of finished that up. But, yeah, so I've just gone a different different um, way with the taxidermy now, so I'm, I'm doing it full-time now, so it's really good. Good to hear. Fantastic that uh, business is booming and – what I'll do is I'll put a link in the show notes to the Instagram and Facebook pages for everyone to make it easy for everyone to jump over to and check out what you do. So Damon, mate, really appreciate your time tonight. Thanks for, for jumping on and having a chat and, uh, mate, keep doing it. I love what you're doing and I can't wait to, to see more of it because it's definitely some impressive work that you do down there. Thanks, Matt. Lovely to have a chat with you, mate. Appreciate it. All right, listeners, bye for now. If you have a topic, guest, question, or any gear that you want to hear about on the podcast, shoot us an email, australianhuntingandbeyond at gmail.com. Alternatively, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All the links are in the show notes. If you haven't already, make sure you give us a review and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.